Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Please do open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and we now enter the formal portion of our worship this morning, which is always the study of God's Word. Uh, For those of you who are newer with us, we are committed to sequentially working our way through this gospel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so we have been doing that for essentially three years at this point. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 8 and verses 16 through 21, a notoriously difficult passage to interpret, but one that is critical to understand. And so just by way of introduction, let me read for you these verses, which will capture the majority of our thoughts for this morning. And this is the final portion of this section that we have been studying Again, Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 21. Here's what this man records under the inspiration of the Spirit. These are Jesus' words. Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. But he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. We have been spending our time in a section known as the parable of the sower, or perhaps more aptly titled the parable of the soils. And we gave three weeks to that familiar teaching of our Lord, and we learned that the soils were essentially a description of the heart. That is what those soils represent. They all four describe various receptions to the message of the gospel. And so we saw that there is the hardened heart. This is the one that just sort of has seed bounce off of concrete. When you give the gospel, it bounces off their heart in that same way. We saw that there was the superficial or the shallow heart. This is the one who receives the gospel. They hear the gospel and respond to it immediately with great joy, but eventually fall away during times of hardship or persecution. We also saw that there was the worldly heart, that is, the heart that receives the gospel and appears to be authentic. They believe for even a long while and produce much fruit, as that description declared. And yet as time goes on, they are choked out by weeds, which represent the pleasures and the riches and the anxieties of the world. And so while they bore much fruit for a long time, eventually they fell away. And then there was the good heart. 
It was the good heart that received the gospel and then bore much fruit, 30, 60, even 100-fold. Three different kinds of bad hearts or unreceptive hearts, but only one description of the good heart. And so just on an initial reading, that is not an encouraging message for the preacher. Three of the four hearts are described as rejecting the gospel or rejecting the word, and yet only one will ultimately receive that word and persevere until the end. And that is not to say that you should understand that as some kind of statistical statement, that somehow only one in four will receive the gospel in a saving or persevering way. It, it could be in your life less than 25%. Sometimes it's more than 25%. It's not really an issue of percentage. That is not the point. Rather, the emphasis is to reveal how there are many different forms and multiple ways in which people will react to the hearing of the gospel. And it's a very important passage because it does help to answer why so many immediately reject when you speak forth truth, but also how so many can seemingly bear fruit for many, many years and appear to be the real deal and appear to be authentically converted and yet in the end to prove themselves to be a false follower. And so it offers, I think, some explanatory power for why there are so many different kinds of responses to the gospel, why some reject immediately, why some appear to be saved for a little while and even have a lot of passion and enthusiasm at first, why others appear even to be saved for a long while and bear much fruit. In fact, to answer the question, and specifically with the third soil as to how a person can appear to be authentically transformed for many years and bear a tremendous amount of fruit. And it appears that God is using them in very significant ways, but then ultimately at some point they prove themselves to be false, prove themselves to be unredeemed. But the key word in that passage, if you were able to pick up on it as we were working through it, was this very important theme of hearing. I don't know if you were able to pick up on that, but every single one of these soils are not an issue if a person hears, but rather it is an issue of how a person hears. Notice the repetition of this critical word. Jesus is clear that many will hear the gospel and many will respond to the gospel in some kind of way, but again, that is not the issue. This is not an issue that you are hearing. Rather, this is an issue of how you are hearing. Notice verse 8. As Jesus would be teaching, Luke records that he would periodically call out and say these words. Notice end of verse 8. And as he said these things, he would call out saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is about hearing. All of us have ears to hear or all of us have ears, but evidently not all of us have ears to hear, is his point. There's a kind of hearing that is deaf to the truth of the kingdom, and there is a kind of hearing that is attuned to the truth of the kingdom. Notice as well, verses 9 through 10, the disciples begin to question Jesus as to the meaning of the parable that he just spoke. And so in verse 10, He states, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables. Why? Well, so that seeing they may not see and in hearing they may not understand. 
So there is a hearing that leads to understanding, and there is a hearing, evidently, that while the person hears, they do not hear. They do not perceive. They do not hear in a manner so as to have it lead to a true understanding of divine truth. Divine truth doesn't penetrate. Divine truth remains impotent and powerless on that person's heart. And so again, they are hearing, but they are not understanding. There are many who think that they hear. There are many who think that they understand. There are many who believe that they've come to know the truth and perceive that truth and have been authentically transformed by the gospel. But the point of Jesus is that while they hear and therefore presume because they hear that they somehow understand, the reality is that they remain deaf to the truth of the kingdom. And so again, I tell you that this is a passage ultimately about hearing. In fact, notice Jesus' explanation of the parable starting in verse 12. He states, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Verse 13, and those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear. Verse 14, and the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. Verse 15, and the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word. And so again, the issue here is not that a person is merely hearing the word, for there are many that will hear. Rather, the state of the heart always comes down to how a person is hearing the word. In fact, Jesus confirms that in verse 18. Or notice, he gives that overt command. In fact, the only command in this entire section and therefore the main point of the entire passage, main point of any passage, if you didn't know grammatically, is always bound up with the imperative or the command. And so in verse 18, notice he states, so therefore take care in how you listen. Take care in how you listen. And notice, this is not a command to make certain that you listen. Rather, this is a directive in how you are listening. There is a certain kind of listening or quality of listening that he is commanding. Because again, while there are many who hear, the truth is they are not hearing in a way that saves, in a way that causes them to become a true disciple or a true follower of Jesus Christ. And then notice in verse 21, Jesus says at the end, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And so again, for many, there is a hearing that while they hear, they do not hear. While they hear, they do not understand. They do not perceive. And so what Jesus is doing is contrasting that kind of person with the one who hears, but in a way that does lead to a true understanding. And so the one who truly understands is the one whom, as he says here in verse 15, holds it fast and bears fruit with perseverance. In other words, these are the ones whom, upon receiving the word of God, know what to do with it. They receive it as divine truth. Not only do they understand and believe, but they then live a life that perpetually bears fruit. And so the reason I belabor the point here, this idea of hearing, is not merely to draw attention to the true theme of the entire passage, which again runs from verse 4 all the way through verse 21, but also to help us understand that Jesus is driving home a very significant point. And that is, as we'll see in a little bit, 
while there are many who hear the word of God, the fact is that they are right now living in a state of veritable delusion. And what makes that delusion so deceptive and so hard to see within your own life, perhaps, is that while many are not hearing in a way that leads to a life of bearing fruit, the fact is there is a sense in which they still hear, which is why they are so deceived. Again, verses 12 through 14, every single one of those bad hearts, mark it, are in the state of some kind of hearing of the word. And so he says, the problem is that while they hear, which is what makes them feel as if they're truly saved, particularly in those second and third soils, the reality, as he says, is they do not rightly hear, which is why he has such a burden to belabor the point. He knew that there would be many self-professing disciples whom while they hear the word of God and some even receive it into their heart and some even seem to bear fruit in accord to that word, soil number three, the reality is they weren't hearing in a manner that in the end was truly saving. And so this morning, Jesus is going to once again make some very significant statements in order that we might perform a sort of self-analysis. In fact, up until this point, he has not given a single command in all of chapter 8. And so after these many weeks of working through this parable, we come this morning to this single yet eternally critical command. And it is the singular point to which he has been driving, and therefore the singular command for which we would be wise and do well to heed And so look with me, if you would, to verse 16, where he shifts metaphors but remains consistent in his purpose with his teaching. He states, now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come in may see the light. Now, as I mentioned, this is a difficult passage to interpret, and primarily because many try to read too much into the symbolism here in this verse. Many make a big deal as to what Jesus might have meant by lighting or lamp or hiding or seeing, so on and so forth. But the best way to understand the verse is simply to understand it as a proverb. This is a proverb. And if you know how proverbs work, you know that a proverb always has a singular point. And there are many ways in which you might be able to apply that proverb, but there is always and only one single meaning to the proverb. And so the basic idea here with this proverb is that there is a right way to use something and then there is a wrong way to use something. That is the simple meaning of the statement. In this day, lamps were typically made of terracotta. They'd be very similar to our modern day candle, although instead of using wax, they would use oil. And so pretty self-explanatory, but if you cover it up or you stick it under bed, it has no value. It doesn't provide light or function in the manner that it was meant to function. And so what they would do is once it was lit, they would put it up on a stand, a lampstand, to make it higher so that its light could be shed abroad in the room. And so what Jesus is saying, coming off of this parable about different kinds of hearing, is that it is 
possible to hear the gospel and it is possible to receive the gospel and even have a very deep knowledge of the gospel, but that that is also utterly insufficient. That is to say that to be merely in possession of the gospel or to contain knowledge of divine truth is of zero value, which again is what makes this so difficult. Many have a clear understanding of the word in terms of a knowledge. Many have the gospel in their mind and in some capacity even in their heart because they have heard, but the problem, according to Jesus, is that they do not make proper use or application of that gospel within their own life. That is to say that upon receiving or hearing the gospel, they just tuck it away. In other words, to stick with the illustration, they never stick it on the lampstand within their own heart, and so it doesn't have any kind of effect. Rather, it's tucked away, it's hidden, it's never brought to bear in any real way within their life. And so these are ones who make a profession. These are ones who hear the word and might even receive that word. They understand the facts of the gospel. They might assent to those facts as divine truth. There's no debate there. But the problem is that it has never shaped or controlled every aspect of their life. Just like a light on a lamp stand spreads its light across the entirety of the room, the gospel or biblical truth, when rightly applied, will cover every aspect of a person's life. And it's never hard to recognize such a person. There are many who love to hear, they love to receive, they love to understand, but the problem is that it's never led to a true transformation. There is very little conformity to that word in any real way. And so the underlying point is that it is not sufficient to simply be in possession of the gospel. That is to say, it is not sufficient to merely know the facts or have a semblance of the truth in your mind. The question is, so what have you done with that truth? That is the issue. That is the implied question and burden of Jesus. And so he is not impressed that you hear the gospel, for as he says, all four of these Hearts or soils are hearers of the word. Rather, the concern is, have you heard and have you rightly applied what you have heard? That is his concern. As you listen to sermons, as you study the scriptures, as you receive biblical counsel, as you read books by faithful authors, the question is never, do you hear and understand, but do you hear, understand, and apply. In fact, the number one question as you hear the word of God opened up for you every single week is so in light of that truth in that particular text, what is it about my life that must change? That is the question that you should be asking. The reality is that most people do not listen with intent to apply. They agree they should apply, but they have no intent to apply. Most people listen with intent to understand. Many listen with intent to understand and be convicted. 
They listen with intent to understand and be encouraged. They listen with intent to understand and be motivated. They listen with intent to understand and be inspired, but very few listen with intent to conform or transform something specific within their own life. Either they listen with vague, superficial ears that while they hear, they do not hear. That while they hear, they do not truly hear because they do not hear in a manner that leads to consistent, authentic transformation. That is to say that they walk out no different than they came in. And they come in the following week no different than they walked out the previous. But Jesus says no one takes a lamp after lighting it and sticks it under a bed. That, That is not how you use a lamp. That's how you set things on fire. And so in a similar way, there is a proper way to receive or hear divine truth. It is not sufficient merely to hear. Rather, the question is, so how do you apply what you keep hearing? What do you do with the truth? That is his question. Again, it's not hard to distinguish between those who merely hear and those who hear and then make proper use with what they hear. Those who merely hear are those whose life looks the same this year as it did last year. These are those who produce no more fruit. They grow in no more maturity. They can point you to not one more disciple that they have made. They put away no more sin. They exercise no greater self-control. They do not tame the tongue. They are no more holy. They are no more sanctified. They look no more like the person of Jesus Christ. And so they look the exact same this year as they did last year. And why? Well, because they just keep on merely hearing only. Instead of placing the lamp on the lampstand, they just keep tucking it away. But those who hear and apply, these are the ones who bear fruit, as Mark says in his version, 30, 60, and 100-fold. In other words, the evidence of whether or not you're hearing and rightly applying is, so does your life produce a consistent fruit? And because, as Jesus has been saying, if you are faithful with what you have heard, you will, fact, you will bear fruit. There is no such thing as a faithful but fruitless disciple. That is a contradiction in terms for Jesus. And so just as a lamp, when properly used and properly placed on its stand will shed light across the room, so also those who properly hear and properly apply what they hear will bear much fruit. Just as the purpose of a lamp is to produce light, the purpose of hearing is to produce fruit. And so the point again is that to rightly hear is to necessarily be fruitful, verse 8 and verse 15. And what's important to notice is that in verse 17, he then describes what will happen for those who hear but then don't apply. These are ones who hear but don't really hear. And so he says, notice verse 17, for nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, 
nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. What is he saying? Well, these are the ones who, while they think that they hear or think that they understand, a day is coming in which they'll come to know that they never truly did. But there's a day coming in which all things will be made known to them. Their heart will be exposed. Their deeds, or in the context, lack thereof, will become known to them. And so whether you are one who hears but immediately rejects the gospel like we saw in the first soil or you are one who hears but never applies and so you're deceived into thinking that you are somehow truly in the kingdom like we see in the second and third soil, what Jesus is saying is that a day is coming in which the truth about every single one of us shall be made known. Notice there is nothing hidden that will not become evident and there is nothing in secret that will not be known or come to light. This is very similar to what the writer of Ecclesiastes states in chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14. He says there the conclusion, this is the very end of his book after 12 chapters of instruction on wisdom. He says the conclusion when all has been heard, there it is again, The conclusion or end of a matter when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Obey. For this applies to every person or the whole of a person. And why will for, so for this reason, so for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, So just like the writer of Ecclesiastes, the point of Jesus is that it is a wise person who when they hear, they hear always with the end in mind. That is to ask, do you order your life in the light of eternity? Do you hear the word and listen to the word and seek out a right understanding of the word and seek to apply the word because you understand that it has eternal implications? Do you heed the word of God with care because you will be held accountable and hear this for every word that you hear and how you apply that word? Or is it just the same old stuff every single week and so you shrug? Or you quibble and debate in order to justify or slip out of having to apply the word? And so what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to get us to take stock in what we do with what we hear because a day is coming in which your soul's account will be settled. And so you do not want to be one who merely hears. Rather, you want to be one who has heard the truth but then rightly applied that truth. You want to be one who has put the word to work within your life. But if you're one who just keeps hearing and you're one who just keeps listening, his point is that all you're doing is sticking it under a bed. You might be in possession of the word because you have a certain knowledge of the word, but it's of no use to you. And so he says that every time that you hear the word, what will help you rightly apply is always to listen with the end in mind. That is to say that you are a wise person if you keep eternity perpetually before your eyes. Or the one who keeps sight of eternity and listens in the light of the judgment can't help but to apply that truth. 
They understand that there is a day coming in which there will be a full exposure of their life. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, in verse 16, Paul states a similar thing as Jesus here. When he says that there is a day coming, and hear this, there is a day coming in which God will judge the secrets of men. He will judge the secret thoughts of men. How many approach life casually because they forget that God is aware of even the secret thoughts of their heart? You might be able to trick or deceive the people around you, but you will not deceive the one who discerns your thoughts and intentions better than even you. How many refuse to apply because they know that no one can see what they think or do when they're all alone? They might come to church, they might profess Christ, they might hear the word and know a great many things about the word, but then go home where no one can see them and then forget what they have heard. That is to say, they still know the word, but they do not apply that word. And because perhaps there's no immediate consequence to sticking it under a bed. They just keep presuming upon the grace of God and assuming that tomorrow has been promised to them. They think casually or tritely about what they have heard. And so because they did not listen with the end in mind, they did not listen with an awareness of that ever-approaching day in which Christ will expose all that is hidden. And so they do not listen with intent to apply. In fact, notice verse 18, Jesus therefore gives the command. He says, therefore, so in light of what he just said, Therefore, make certain that you take care in how you listen. And again, notice, it's not take care that you listen, for there are many who listen, but rather take care in how you listen. Very important. Because again, there are many who hear, but don't rightly hear. In fact, there's a little play on words going on here. This phrase here, to take care, is actually the word blepo in the Greek. It is the verb of to see. So it's literally see how you hear, sort of strange. But the implication, and and think about this, but the implication is that a right hearing evidently is something that you will see. That is to say that this is something for which you can observe. It can be made manifest or witnessed within your life, which again is why I say it is never difficult to spot a person who truly hears, meaning that they hear in such a way so as to apply that truth. There are many who spend their life hearing, but no one around them would ever know it. There's never been an application. There's never been a manifest, consistent obedience. And you might say, well, that just sounds legalistic. Well, then evidently Jesus was legalistic because his command here, and again, it's his command, was to make certain that your hearing produces something seen. And so there is nothing detectable or salty, to use Jesus' word, about your life. 
so that when people see you, they see something different about you, namely a life that looks increasingly like the life of Jesus Christ, the one whom you claim to follow? Then in what capacity, and just answer the question because no one can answer this for you except you, but then in what capacity are you a legitimate follower of him? If you don't look like him by doing what he says, then how are you his disciple? Which is the very definition of a disciple. You are one who learns, but so that you might do. The problem that Jesus had with his crowd in this passage, the problem he had with the crowd all the time, is that they kept following him and hearing him and receiving his word, but there was never a transformation. Nothing ever changed. They were mere consumers of his content. And so the problem was that they never thought to apply that content. They were among a group of true disciples here, and so because they were among those disciples, they assumed that they were somehow part of them, as if true discipleship is something merely achieved by your proximity to other true disciples. And so Jesus here was giving them candle after candle, so to speak, to stick with the illustration, and yet all they kept doing was going home and hiding it under a bed. They never stuck it on the lampstand in their life. They never did with it what they were supposed to do with it. And so you had this massive crowd who thought that they were the real deal because they were merely in possession of a candle. They were in possession of his word. But Jesus says many will hold a candle or many will receive and hear the word, but what will they do with that word? And so Jesus commands them to make certain that they can see something within their life. Can you see the results of your hearing? And so the question here is, what is it about your life that proves that you have heard and applied? Because again, evidently, you should be able to see if you have heard. There should be a tangible evidence, a manifest obedience explicit fruit in your life that has become the natural product of rightly hearing and applying? Or do you just keep hearing? Or just because you have heard and understood or maybe even felt something about what you have heard, are you presuming that the word has somehow done its work? And it's very important to be honest about that question, and only you can answer it. And because notice the hard truth of what Jesus attaches to this command, second half of verse 18. Notice he states, for whoever has, it's it's a strange way in which he phrases it here, so stick with me, but he says, for whoever has, meaning whoever has truly heard and applied, so whoever has, to him it shall be given. That word more there is not actually in the original, which is why it's italicized in your translation, and it's pretty unhelpful. So whoever has, to him it shall be given. Well, given what? Well, given the kingdom, given salvation, forgiveness, 
deliverance, eternal life, everything that he's been talking about related to the kingdom. So whoever has, to him it shall be given, but whoever does not have, have what? Will have a right understanding of the word and therefore a right application of the word. Then even what he thinks he has, that is implied there, the promises of the word, it shall be taken from him. Again, a very sobering warning. There are many who think that right now they possess the kingdom and because they're in possession of Jesus' word and have perhaps even made a profession in that word. In fact, notice again, even what he thinks he has, are you one who right now thinks that you have? There are many who profess to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus and so how many of them, I wonder, are thinking that right now they don't have the promises of the kingdom Perhaps almost everyone who professes Christ thinks that they have. Yet he says that these who think that they have, even what they do, it shall be taken. And so he says, do not be negligent in making certain that you can observe that you are rightly hearing. In other words, examine the evidence. Where's the fruit in your life? Where's the proof of your faith as it's been made manifest by your obedience? Again, is that legalism? Well, nowhere here does Jesus say that your obedience somehow saves you. That is not what he is saying, and that is not what I am saying. You will never hear from this pulpit to make certain that you obey so that you can get yourself into heaven. That is legalism, and that is not what I teach. But over and over again, Jesus will say, and therefore I will say, manifest obedience is the sign, is the sign or proof or evidence that you will be in heaven. And why? Because obedience, and hear this, obedience is the necessary byproduct of a truly converted heart. Which is to say that there is no such thing as a genuinely transformed heart that will not produce a consistent obedience. And because a changed heart, and hear this, a changed heart will always produce a changed fruit. And so the point of Jesus' command here is really just to tell us to perform a self-exam. Do you see fruit? Do you see obedience? Do you see your life increasingly conforming into the image of Jesus Christ? In other words, do you see that you are rightly hearing? Verse 18. And if not, then perhaps you are one, as he says, who dwells within this realm of merely hearing. This is what he is telling his disciples at the very beginning. This is all about discipleship. In fact, notice verses 19 through 20. Luke states, and his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. Again, there are many who are willing to come for the purpose of merely hearing. 
And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, and here it is, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. Again, Jesus is a legalist. Beloved, let me put this in the simplest terms as possible. If your life of consistently hearing the word does not lead to a consistent doing of the word, then you are not in Christ. For Jesus, it was that simple. And so because you might sit among the family of Jesus Christ, that is not the sign that you are somehow in the family of Christ. His mother and his brothers and his sisters, spiritually speaking, are those who hear his words and do them. And so the great burden of our Lord as he is being followed by this massive crowd of perpetual hearers is that his 12, these true disciples whom he has chosen and to whom he is talking, his great burden is that they will not be among the hearing crowd, but among those few who will hear and do. And I think at some point, Jesus' brother, his half-brother James, did come to understand this. Presumably, he would have been standing among the brothers here. In fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, it's very interesting. But Mark records that after Jesus selects his 12 to be his true disciples, the text states that Jesus goes back home to have a meal with his family and the crowd at that point had become so large that the family actually attempted to seize Jesus or to take custody of him as it's recorded. And Mark there gives the reason. He says, for they were saying that he has lost his senses, literally lost his mind, talking about Jesus. It is to say that Jesus, who again to them is just their brother that they grew up with, He's become a little bit crazy. In fact, it almost gives a sense that they thought he was buying into some strange cult-like movement for which he's become the self-appointed leader. He was amassing a very large following. The institution was now making threats against his life. He was starting to get people to believe certain things about him and almost just blindly follow him. And so the family here started to get a bit nervous because they thought that he was beginning to put himself into a very dangerous position, which he was. This is starting to get out of control. In fact, some have even rumored that you now claim to be the Messiah. This is what they were thinking. And so while to everyone else, he's becoming this rumored figure of mystery and miracles, to them, he's just their brother. 
He's just Jesus with whom they shared a bedroom with for 30 years. And so here in Luke, they're not yet certain what to do with him. They're still figuring it out. It's very strange. They've been sort of watching him for a distance. He's now out of the house as this traveling itinerant preacher. And so on this particular occasion, they're able to catch up with him. And so Jesus realizes that they don't yet understand or perhaps believe that he is who he says he is. And so he says that my family or my true family, which is something far greater than some mere blood connection. But he says that those who belong to my family are those who hear my words and do them. And so while James, Jesus' half-brother, was presumably not yet understanding this in Luke chapter 8, at some point after the resurrection, he began to recognize that his brother is who he said he was. And so turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, toward the end of your New Testament passage that many of you know well. And notice what he writes starting in verse 21 of chapter 1. He says these very important words that are hard words but good words. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice it is the word that saves, not your works that save. Verse 22, but prove yourselves, and here it is, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Why? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, there is no such thing as a truly converted soul which does not also produce true obedience. Again, it is not your obedience that saves you. That is not what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is that your obedience gives the evidence that you already are. Very important distinction. And why Jesus can say, so see that you hear. Do you see that you do? And what should stand out to you about this passage is notice that it is the hearers who are deluded. In other words, those who overtly reject the gospel typically understand that they have rejected the gospel, like that first soil. But it's those who are prone to always and only hearing who are in danger of becoming deluded. Those who perhaps love the word and love to hear sound teaching. In fact, we live in a time in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer labeled as cheap grace. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as easy believism. This is a kind of approach that presumes 
upon the forgiving grace of the gospel and because you assume that merely assenting to its truthfulness in your mind is somehow sufficient to save you. In fact, here's what he said. And he was fighting against something called licentiousness in his day, which is the idea of turning the grace of God into a license to sin. That you've received forgiveness and now you can just keep pursuing whatever you want, just believe the gospel, but nothing needs to change. Easy believism. He said, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves, meaning it's something that doesn't actually come from God. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance or true change. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, it's a kind of mindset that says, I'll take your forgiveness in heaven, but then live how I want. It's that presumptive view toward the forgiving grace of God that says it doesn't really matter what I do because it's always covered under the blood. You ever heard that? So I don't really have to obey. I don't really have to conform my life. I don't really have to bend my life under the obedience of Jesus Christ. I've heard his gospel. I've received his forgiveness. I have accepted heaven. And so since I have got the ticket, I can now keep living my life in a manner that suits my own desires. And so it's an approach that views the grace of God more like Fire insurance. Quick ticket out of hell. Jesus would say that kind of person is merely a hearer. A religious consumer who will take his heaven and receive the forgiveness of sin, but has zero interest in putting away that sin and then following him down that path of increasing holiness. And so both Jesus and James say that all that a person does is simply show themselves to be unconverted in the first place. Again, it's not hard to spot a truly converted heart, is it? These are ones who desire the word. They desire the fullness of the word. They don't try to justify its hard sayings. They don't try to figure out how they can get out of having to obey the word. Rather, their desire is to learn the word, but always so that they might be transformed into the image of their Lord. And again, not to, quote, get saved, but because they already are. The natural product or overflow of the converted soul or a new heart is always a desire and love for obedience. The mark of a new heart is one who desires new things. In fact, this is why James can say over in chapter 2, in verses 17 through 20, these words, he states, So faith, if it has no works, is dead. But someone may say, you have faith, and I have works, so show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith. How will buy my works? 
What's he saying? Well, again, works are the evidence that true faith abides. If you can't point to fruit, then you ought not to have assurance. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. In other words, you are a hearer. You have come to a right understanding and knowledge of God. Well, you do well, but know this. Even the demons believe that God is one, but at least they shudder. Merely believing in God, whatever that means, and even having a right understanding about him means very little. How many profess Christ in that cheap grace sort of way, but have zero fear of God before their eyes? In fact, they love their sin. They still love that which marked their former life and still want to hang on to a vestige of that former life. And so they pursue their sin. They indulge in their sin, justifying it, rationalizing it, petting it, giving all kinds of explanations and justifications for it, but because they keep on thinking that it's somehow under the blood. It is a very dangerous place to be, presuming upon the grace of God. Whereas James says, even these demonic beings, and who, by the way, are beyond forgiveness, at least they shudder over the reality of God in the light of their willful sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul says that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's a wonderful statement. In other words, it is impossible for you to outsin the grace and the mercy of God. We know that. That is the great promise of the gospel. Our entrance into heaven is not a function of our holiness, but a function of our trust in the one who is holy, right? It's a function of the one who lived that holy life in our place and died that death that we should have died. But then in chapter 6 and verse 1, basically the next verse, and Paul, knowing the nature of man, to then take that truth and run with it, that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He says these words, he says, what shall we then say? Are we to then continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Nay, Genoita, the strongest possible negation in the Greek. Some translations phrase it as God forbid that we should do that. For how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? That is a rhetorical question with the implied answer of we don't. And no true Christian with a converted heart would think that. There's no such thing as an authentic Christian with an authentically transformed heart who's authentically received the word but does not now love the pursuit of obedience. 
It's a wonderful thing to see a person come to faith and just watch them start to strip their life of anything that will hinder that pursuit. I have seen this many, many times, and it is always a beautiful thing and an encouraging thing. They're not trying to figure out what they can keep of their old life while still trying to follow Jesus. And because it is not a loss for them to shed that which doesn't honor Christ. Again, James chapter 1 and verse 21, therefore putting aside or literally putting away all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. How much is all? They're not trying to hang on to anything that formally identified them at all. They're seeking to put it all away. They're seeking to pursue something completely different. New identity, new pursuits, new loves. It might be difficult at times because old patterns and habits can be so ingrained, but it is not a loss to them to shed that old manner of life. That is the difference. Jesus said that it was his food. It was his food to do the will of his Father. Can we say that? Do you hear the word because you want to ease your religious conscience or do you hunger for the word because by it you may grow with respect to your salvation, as Peter states? What is your motivation for hearing? What is it that drives you to keep hearing? There are those who love the word because being convicted or even being encouraged makes them feel like they're still part of the kingdom. But the truly converted are more interested in knowing the word because it is how they conform their life into the image of their Lord who has saved them. And so the question for all of us this morning as we end this very important section on hearers coming off of this parable is, so what do we see in our lives? Can you see the produce of your faith? Or are you one who's content with simply hearing? And if so, my plea to you this morning is to examine the life of Jesus himself. We're in Philippians chapter 2, it was read earlier. In verses 5 through 9, we see that Jesus himself was a doer of the Father's word. Paul states, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And here it is, how? By becoming obedient. By becoming obedient. Jesus, the one whom we claim to follow, was himself a doer. By becoming obedient to the point of death, namely death on a cross, 
And then hear this, therefore, therefore God highly exalted him. Again, your works of obedience are not what get you into heaven, but they are the evidence that you're on your way. They are the evidence that your faith is genuine. And so the call of this passage, beloved, again, is to see. That is the main command. It is not to hear, but it is to see that you hear. For as you do, you ensure that you are not merely a hearer, as James would say, who has deluded yourself. That is my great burden for you and for this church. And that is the call that is upon every single one of us this morning through these words of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we'll talk about something more encouraging. Let's pray. And so, Father, a challenging call indeed. Thank you for the opportunity, though, to once again see what you've truly said, especially in an age of so many lies and deceptions. And so as I pray often, help us to lay aside our preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live as one who professes Christ and claims to be a disciple. And so as we see with these words, may we do an honest examination Help us to see what we might not yet see. And may you grant repentance where repentance needs to happen. And then may we walk that narrow path that you've called us to walk, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we live as a strange people in a strange land sojourning this world in a very strange time, but functioning as beacons of light for the kingdom in a very dark place. Because we are not content with merely hearing, but because we desire to both hear and do and bear much fruit. And so I do ask that you would be honored with this church. May the obedience of this church be a pleasant aroma before you, especially in an age of so much false worship and easy believism marked by cheap grace. May conformity to your word be the very desire of our hearts, something rare but a place we know of tremendous blessing. And so may you accept our words of praise as we now turn to song for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.